0: Good morning, good morning. I'm so excited to welcome uh, those who are worshiping at home with us, uh, too, to uh, Palm Sunday. And man, what an amazing group of folks in here. You guys are looking great, you're sounding great. Isn't it good to be worshiping uh, here in the house of God? Would you go ahead and just praise the Lord? Yeah. I know that we've kind of been on this runway to return for some time, and, and it seems every week we've got more and more folks that are. Uh, feeling confident return, maybe, maybe it's because of, uh, of vaccinations or just uh, obviously the numbers improving and all of that, uh, but I just want to say praise the Lord. Seems like we're uh, headed the right direction, and next Sunday's Easter, and so just kind of a big reminder to everyone, uh, we're doing a little bit different. If you are planning to come back um, next uh, Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we have multiple options for modern, all right? Normally, we only have the one hour at 1110 in this room for Modern, but just so that you're fully aware and you know what you're registering for, um, you have an option to come at 830 in the North Auditorium for a Modern service, live teaching and live music, 950 in the North Auditorium, Modern, live teaching and, and live music, and then 1110 in this room. And then uh, if you're at home and you're, again, planning, Blended will be in this room at 8.30, just like normal, and 9.50 will be traditional. That's a lot going on, but I just wanted you to be fully aware. Trying our best to make sure we make room for uh, other folks who will come on Easter and so, if you are uh, one who's like, hey, I'd come at 8.30, you know, and go ahead and uh, come a little early, 8.30 or 9.50, you can come to Modern in the North, Auditorium. love you to be here. Go and take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and kind of uh, posing this idea today on Palm Sunday, this is kind of the, the day that marks the the week that... Uh, That led up to the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, kind of we've called it Passion Week traditionally. And so the Sunday that begins Passion Week is called Palm Sunday, and it's not by accident. We read a passage in just a minute where Jesus was going in Jerusalem, a lot of folks just threw palm branches on the road, right, and uh, started really just praising uh, God, ultimately even praising Jesus in that moment. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But but this was kind of a a line in the sand, all right. Matthew twenty one is is kind of a, a pinnacle, if you will, of of faith for Christians. Because uh, if, if uh, you've had any exposure to church in the past, you've probably heard of John 3.16. If you've watched NFL football, you've heard of John 3.16, right? Because some guy used to hold that up all the time. But, uh, but that scripture is probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a verse, but here's what that basically says in the beginning, that God the Father sent the Son. And so... In a real sense, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this was a God in flesh coming in the form of a man to Bethlehem to be born, live a 33 year sinless life, 30 of that was just growing up. I mean, obviously he was the son of God and so it was not that he was just a normal human being, but he was fully human, fully God, yet fully man. And, uh, and so that 30 years, it led up to the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and you know, you've seen that or heard of it before. Well, Jesus, that began his three-year ministry that, that led to his calling of the disciples, and he called multiple disciples along the way that, that followed him, and, and his ministry was only three years. And if you've never heard this, this may be news to you, but the Bible's clear that Jesus actual ministry of working miracles and preaching that we read about in in the scriptures was just three years long. And during that three-year period, it led up to this moment. All through that time, there were times where people would ask Jesus, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And he'd say, my time hasn't come. My time has not yet come. Well, this was the moment in time when his time had come. And so, this was the moment when Jesus showed up in a big way, and we're gonna talk about that concept today, Thursday night at the upper room service at 6.30, and then Sunday morning at Easter, the fact that Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up at this perfect time in history when the Greek language was, was sweeping the globe, and uh, the New Testament happened to be written in Greek so that people in the modern world, no matter where they lived, would be able to have access to the truth of God's word, and then also it just so happened, not a coincidence, just so happened that the Romans were in charge of stuff governmentally, and so they had constructed roads throughout the the, the modern world, and so the the gospel that had been written in Greek could could be uh, delivered by disciples by followers of Jesus all throughout the world. So this was not an accident. This wasn't some just you know just random idea that God had a good plan B. No, this was not one of many options. Jesus, at this moment in time, was the only hope for mankind. And so this, this Passion Week that we're entering into that leads up to next Sunday's Resurrection Sunday, it's a gospel story. Listen, if you've never heard it before, or maybe you've heard of church people and you're like, ah, oh, church, that's just a bunch of stuff. I, you know, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need religion, or maybe I don't even believe in God or whatever. I would say, hey, lean in, and maybe you're watching at home, and this is, you know, news to you. You don't really get all this. You're gonna hear in, in just a short period of time, this Sunday, next Sunday, the gospel story and, uh, and I would encourage you just to be open-minded and, and listen to the Holy Spirit and allow God to speak to you. Because this is the fact, Jesus showed up for you. He showed up for you. It's, it's, uh, it's like Angie said just a moment ago, he died for you. Now you may say, wait a minute, if Jesus died for me, does that mean I'm saved already, I'm going to heaven? No, it doesn't. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. But, but here's what it means. It means the opportunity for salvation is definitely available to you. It's not automatic, but it's available. He's done all the work that has to be done for you to go to heaven and to be with him forever, but but it's not automatic. And so with all that in mind, this leads us to this crossroads of history. Um, And the father had this perfect plan of redemption through the son, Jesus. And so we're going to look at this story as we read in Matthew 21 as kind of a, a process uh, that has checkpoints along the way. Because this is a journey, it's a, it's a pathway down the Mount of Olives. This story's gonna, gonna tell us about a, a, an event where Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, going down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And, uh, and when I went to Israel, some of you in the room may have even been with me, uh, we walked down this Mount, this Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. It's fascinating even to remember that event because it's real. I mean, it's like this is legitimately a real place where Jesus really walked, where people really threw palm branches as, as uh, he entered into uh, the city. And so when he showed up, what changed? What difference did it make? Go and look with me. Matthew 21, beginning verse one. Here's what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and, and came to Bethpage, a town right outside Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village, in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie it and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, uh, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet in the Old Testament saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt the fowl of a beast of burden. Now, this is a, a quote, a direct quote of Zechariah 9, nine, And so, this is prophecy. Again, if, if you see it, first time you've ever been to church, and you're like, what's he talking about? Well, the, the first half of the Bible's Old Testament. The second half, you could say, is the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of prophets, a whole lot of people who were telling about the Messiah that was going to come. And so, that's why it's so confirming. Christianity is so amazing because... The compatibility of how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together. How Jesus and the gospel answered all of the questions that were, were asked in the Old Testament. And Zechariah nine is one example. So this is a quote from Zechariah nine. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, uh, put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Now, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before Jesus and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, so we're gonna look in a minute, what's that mean? That's a very important. And then verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Someone's like, I mean, if it was Simpsonville, we'd be like, what is happening in Simpsonville, man? Something's going crazy. The people are going nuts. Is this some kind of parade, what's, what's up? And the crowd said, this is the prophet. This is the, the, the prophet the, the Naz- of Nazareth of Galilee, Jesus. And so, even though they got it wrong, calling him just a prophet, it lets them understand that that's why everybody was such a stir. And it brings kind of the bottom line of the day. Here's the bottom line. Things get stirred up when Jesus shows up. Things get stirred up when Jesus shows up. Now, things get stirred up in our lives when Jesus shows up. Ultimately, we we get uh, Jesus getting in our business. Oftentimes, it's stuff we don't want him to get in, but when he shows up in our lives, he stirs us up. And when he shows up in a church, he stirs the church up. It doesn't stay the same. There's no way if, if, if we're legitimately surrendered to God and, and we're passionately following Jesus Christ that we can just be a complacent group of boring people. God forbid, right? I mean, we serve, we serve Jesus Christ who legitimately has changed history and given us an opportunity for forgiveness and eternity with him in heaven. That's a reason for us to actually be excited. And so with all that in mind, I'm gonna give you three checkpoints as we walk down this Palm Sunday path on the Mount of Olives. Here's the first checkpoint. You ready? If you got your app, go and look at your app and fill in the blank. Um, if you go and just search for an app, First Baptist Simpsonville, you can see the logo, click on it, free download. And on there you can follow along, the scripture's on there, but also you can take notes on the app, email them to yourself. It's a pretty cool feature, um, free of charge. So great to, to follow along. But, but here's the first point. The first checkpoint is this, Jesus is King of Kings. First thing we got to see on Palm Sunday, looking directly at the text is that the message of Matthew 21 is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is not just a king, Jesus is the king. Now this is very difficult for us to grasp looking back. This concept is difficult because we understand obviously king equivalent today would be like president, right? Ruler of a country. And so, when we think of Jesus as king, we definitely think of eternal kingdom, and we don't know how people got confused, but I'm telling you, 2,000 years ago, this really messed with people, all right? This messed people up. In fact, there were people who were very close to Jesus, who followed Jesus, I mean, within the 12 disciples, who got this messed up. Um, A lot of people, not speculation, I'll give you that, but a lot of people speculate that Judas Iscariot's betrayal was directly tied to Jesus, thinking that Jesus was going to or should establish an earthly kingdom and take the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now, so he was, they would say, forcing the hand of Jesus and saying, hey, maybe if I betray him, if I go ahead, maybe that'll nudge him along and that'll force Jesus to go ahead and, and, and overthrow Rome, and go ahead and, and say, this is our nation. We're taking the throne back. And, and, and then, just by the very nature of his name, Simon the Zealot, if you've ever heard of Simon the Zealot, it's one of the 12 disciples who Jesus called. By, literally by the name Zealot, it identified him with a group of people that were were political outliers. They were rebellious. They were rebelling against the establishment of the Roman government's rule over the Israeli people. And so these zealots were, they were quite aggressive, just to be quite honest with you. And so Jesus called a wide variety. I know you know, he called fishermen, he called tax collectors. But imagine, he called legitimately, a a, a, kind of in a way, an anarchist in a sense. He he called people who were pretty extreme and had ideas that may be inconsistent with their initial um, view of or or truly who Jesus was. And so, Jesus was coming as king of all eternity, king of a kingdom that's beyond the stars. Yet, there were disciples, there were people who thought, man, Jesus… Jesus has come as king of David. Even if you look at the passage, it calls him the son of David, an ancestor to the throne, which he legitimately was. And so it was very confusing. But here's the thing. We, we could see the people of Israel and kind of scratch our heads and, and be like, oh, I don't understand why they had mixed motivations. Why were they wanting a Messiah, but they also wanted a king? Those poor people. They, they somehow thought that politics could, could solve things. They somehow thought, that you know, if they just got the right person on the throne, that that would solve all their earthly problems. And so they they were motivated to do everything they could to to push that agenda because that agenda was the real solution in their minds. You might say they had dueling uh, desperations. They were definitely desperate spiritually. They were in great need of a savior. But their dueling desperation was they were desperate physically, they were desperate emotionally, they were desperate politically in that climate. They they thought that somehow a king would fix everything. That if they just got the right king, it would fix everything. No way we could understand that, right, in the United States, that Christians, that followers of Jesus could get so confused that somehow we elevate politics above the gospel. No way, right? Y'all are awful quiet. Nobody's gonna even nobody's gonna even laugh. Here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is modern day Christians are no better than these disciples. Modern day Christians, we're no better than the people who are shouting, King! No, no better than people who are getting confused and and having mixed motivations, no better than people who had dueling desperations. Because somehow we have we have bought into the lie of the enemy that that there's some way that the ideals and the and the agendas of this world will satisfy the longing of our soul. There's no way. There is no president, past, present, or future, who will ever answer the questions that we have for eternity. And, and look, there is no ruler who will ever be as big as Jesus, right? Because he was the ruler of all rulers. He is the king of all kings. He's the president of all presidents. And there is no man, no woman, no political party who deserves our allegiance in comparison to Jesus Christ all right now that doesn 't mean all right let me make sure that doesn 't mean we disengage we don 't get involved it doesn't mean you don 't you don't have a political opinion my goodness if we 've got, got eight hundred people in the room we 've got nine hundred opinions about politics all right so I understand in this day that it is very difficult for us to disengage or to at least at least prioritize properly our our surrender to King Jesus, but we're never going to get the mission right until we get this right. Jesus is more important than any king will ever have. The gospel is more important than any political party you'll ever follow, and that's both sides. Be an equal opportunity offender. Look, this is why it's so important for Christians to clarify the target of our hope. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in a ruler. Our hope is not in a a pastor. It's not in four walls, a building. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Nothing we we do should signal to an unbelieving world that we have placed our hope in a man. Nothing should confuse people who don't know Jesus to think that we as followers of Jesus somehow we're, were banking so much on this or that party or this or that man, this or that ruler, that somehow... Everything is desperation when we don't get our way. And we shouldn't get so confused as to think somehow the providence of God has taken a break when the person we voted for doesn't get elected. Now, I'm sure that wasn't for you. But the truth is, it is the truth for us all. God is in charge no matter what. So the first checkpoint, simple. Jesus is king of kings. Secondly, Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the savior of the world. Jesus has not just come to rule, Jesus has come to sacrifice. And this changes everything, because he's not just sitting on a throne, he's dying on a cross. And this is what shakes the world. I mean, honestly, it's what makes, oftentimes, skeptical unbelievers take take aback, because they're sitting here, going, how in the world would the God of the universe come and die on the cross for people who didn't deserve him. And I'm, I'm with you, I don't understand it. All I'm trying to say is when we think that we have to understand a supernatural God and the love of a supernatural God, then, then honestly, we're the ones who are confused. God's love for us is beyond our understanding, it's behind our comprehension, there's no way I will ever understand how God the Father loved me enough to send the Son to die on the cross for me. I don't understand that. But you better believe I believe it. My eternity is based on it. And I'm gonna commit my life to this point that Jesus is not just the, the, the king, he is the savior of the world. It says in verse nine, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then that word, Hosanna. says, Hosanna in the highest. Now we usually think, when we think the word Hosanna, we think uh, that Hosanna is like an expression of praise and adoration. Maybe kind of like hallelujah. We think Hosanna's kind of in that, in that category of terminology. But the Old Testament word for Hosanna carried this heart of prayer. And even goes further, carries the heart of an extreme begging of man to God. <clears throat> and so in a way, this posture is not just praise. The posture is one of desperate prayer. But then even beyond that, Uh, Another Old Testament understanding of the word for Hosanna is to emphasize salvation. And so if you ask some people what does Hosanna mean, some people just mean God is salvation. So Hosanna legitimately is, in the context, these people legitimately crying out Hosanna were saying, we are desperate for you to save us. We are desperate for you to deliver us. Now, granted, some of them may have been saying it as king, because obviously Zechariah 9.9, so you are king. We believe you are savior. Many definitely would have said, you are the Messiah. But see, from an Old Testament perspective, some could have been confused and said, you're going to be the Messiah that establishes, reestablishes the throne of David here in Israel. And so they got that dueling desperations. But here we see this is undeniably speaking to the fact that Jesus is Savior of the world. That Jesus came not just to establish a throne, not just to to reinforce a nation or a national security. He came ultimately to save us from our sins. Jesus came to die on a cross so that we didn't have to face the fate of eternal death eternal damnation, condemnation, separated from God in a place called hell. So God legitimately made a way. When Jesus came, he made a way for me not to have to try to get to heaven on my own. I didn't have to be good enough to earn my way to heaven, but I just had to depend and be desperately surrendered to the one who was good enough, and that is Jesus Christ alone. And so the hope of our world is Jesus. This is why it matters in conversations. I'll say in very unpopular conversations, like politics. It's important for your pastor to constantly remind you that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in anything. Our hope is not in our bank accounts. I mean, obviously, we need to work and we need to eat, (laughs) right? But, But our hope is not in food that we eat. Our hope is not in the shelter over our heads when all else is stripped away, if everything else is burned to the ground, our hope is in Jesus. Look, that's not some super Christianity, that is legitimately what it means to follow Jesus, is that he is first and foremost, that we're seeking him first, that, that hey, there are more important things, right? And as more, I mean additional, there are additional important things in this world, should we be engaged in this and participating in that? Absolutely. But in a priority issue, we are putting first priority on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so with all that in mind, it goes back to that question. Well, okay, if Jesus is king and Jesus is savior, and when Jesus died on the cross, so if he's savior for the whole world and he died on the cross, then does that mean that the whole world is saved? I mean, there would be be some people, in fact, it's a growing number of people in our country, who call themselves Christians, who would, would rush quickly to the point of universalism, who would basically say, hey, you're okay, I'm okay. You have your truth, I have my truth. And at the end of the day, God is love, and God's crazy love is going to save you, even if you're a rebellious person who never accepts or embraces His grace. And that, that's a real sentimental, romantic idea But here's the deal that's found nowhere in the Word of God, and it doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus have to die on the cross if it weren't for us in, in needing, looking at the Word of God, needing to return to our relationship with Him? See, in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they had an established relationship with God. It was a beautiful relationship. Our sin busted it up, man. Our sin as a human race broke the relationship between us and God. And so, God has been actively in the process of redeeming us. He's been actively pursuing us. And you may totally think it's an accident that you're here today, but here's the fact. Jesus is showing up in your business right now, all right? And you may be totally rejecting him. You may be throwing up walls. You may be saying, oh, I'm not interested. You may be at home and just saying, hey, I'm just tuning in. But I don't even even know what you're talking about, man. But Jesus is showing up. And at at this crossroads of eternity, you are making a decision. Now you may say, well, I, I'm not making a decision. I'm not going to embrace, I'm not, I'm not going to get saved. Well, I'm not going to be a follower of Jesus. Well, then you've made the decision to turn away from his forgiveness, to turn away from his grace, and to walk the other way. That is a decision. And so with that in mind, we all, we all make this decision one way or another. And so with all this in mind, this is a pretty long quote, but I think it explains what the heart of the problem is. The reach and the embrace of salvation is not limited by the power of the Father's love nor the Son's sacrifice. His love is unconditional and the blood of Jesus is sufficient. So in other words. To say that salvation is possible to all people on on the planet is absolutely true. The reason why I can say that confidently is because there is no limit to the love of God. There is no limit to the the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was perfect enough and his sacrifice was good enough. So there is no limitation to our salvation because of what God has done or because of how powerful or the authority that Jesus Christ has. But here's the problem. The burden of salvation's limitation rests on man's lack of repentance. So if I choose to reject the sacrifice of Jesus, then I am the one who is limiting the saving power of God in my life. It is not because God doesn't wanna save me. It is not because God is not chasing after me. It's because I'm refusing to turn to him and some people would wanna argue from a providence perspective. They would say, well, wait a minute. If, if anything's dependent on us, then somehow God's not sovereign. And I think that's so ludicrous. Listen, here's the fact. All God requires of us is to turn. That is legitimately the call of God in the Word to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then today, here's how you get saved. Turn from your sin and yourself and turn toward him. And, and when we turn, grace grabs us, man. Grace grabs us, and look, I, I, I wish to the Lord that we would get a little fired up and, and be excited about it, but here's what I want us to hear. There are people on every pew in this room who have a story to tell about how God showed up in their life. There's, there's men and women on every pew in this room who have been radically changed by the power of God, who all they did, they don't have any explanation except that they turned from themselves and they turned to Jesus. And when they turned, grace grabbed them. This is what happens when we repent. Now, I know repent's a bad word, right? That's one of those churchy words that people don't like to hear. But that is what salvation requires, is that we recognize we can't, but he can. I'm insufficient, but he is sufficient. I am not enough, but he always is. I, I could never work my way to heaven, but the work that he did on the cross is enough for me. And so this is what salvation is. And so we've got to, we've got to lean in recognizing that sinners must embrace his grace. I've got to. If, if I'm going to be saved, if, if you're going to be saved, have a relationship with Jesus for all of eternity, you've got to turn from yourself and turn to him. So Jesus is the king who will reign for eternity. He is the Savior who gave his life for the world. But then third, it leads us to the final checkpoint on Palm Sunday path down the Mount of Olives, and that is that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, this is kind of timely. Last Sunday, Matthew 7, remember, there are going to be people, Jesus said, who stand in front of him and say, Lord, Lord. But he said, not everybody who said to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, there are going to be people who say, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we work miracles? You remember all I did? Remember? Look at my resume. Aren't you going to let me in? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So, so here's the challenge. And I know it's a challenge. I mean, it's tough. But it's not about being religious. That's why when you hear a pastor, I, I say it all the time. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And so, I look the other day I was in a barbershop and somebody came up to me and said, I'm not a very religious man. And I said, Me neither. I mean, just, you'd find a bunch of Pharisees and they'd probably think I'm not nearly religious enough. (laughs) Y'all all all right? (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, you find a bunch of hypocrites, they may call themselves Baptists, but you find the right group of people and they'll think somebody who just loves Jesus is not nearly religious enough. It is not about a religion. It is about a relationship with Jesus, man. But if you have a relationship with Jesus... Don't tell me you're just going to worship Him in the deer stand every Sunday, right? I mean, I mean that's ludicrous. You have a desire and a hunger. Maybe I should have said, maybe a different crowd, maybe I should have said uh, travel ball. Oh, I, Wayne, you shouldn't have said that, right? You shouldn't have done said that. I mean, I, hey, I'm just keeping it real. At the end of the day, it's about decisions we make. It's about, it's about priorities that we make. So here's the deal. If we're a follower of Jesus, we just need to live like it. We just need to make Him Lord of our life, not just king. Oh, I acknowledge to king, yeah, he's king, he's savior. He's my savior, man upstairs, he's my savior. Absolutely, right? Is he your Lord? Well, yeah, absolutely, no, I mean like really. Like I mean when the Bible says something, do you say, well, I know that's what God expects, but you know what, I, I'm still doing this because this is my life and God understands, right? This is my truth. Is he Lord of your life? And here's where we get this. Look, look at Luke 19, all right? Real quick, Luke 19. Different gospel, same story. Luke chapter 19. And some people, just this is important to point out, some people say, well, hey, when the four gospels say different things, isn't that a contradiction? This is a great example of how Luke says something in addition to what Matthew 21 just said, not a contradiction at all, not a conflict at all it's complementary. So you got four different men telling the same story from different perspectives. Luke chapter 19, we see he adds something to it for really better meaning and and we understand fully the the grasp of what we're talking about today. Luke 19, look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Look at verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke the disciples. Rebuke those people who are saying, he's a king. Rebuke those people who are saying, you're the savior. Tell them they're wrong. Tell them you're not the savior. Tell them you're not the king. And what does he say? He said, I tell you, if these disciples are silent, if these people who are throwing palm branches in front of me, singing Hosanna, those people who are calling me king, if they're silent, the very stones are gonna cry out. What does that mean? He's not just king, he's not just savior. He is Lord of all creation. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And today he has shown up in your life. You may have not invited him, you may have not expected him, but he is nonetheless in front of you today. And he is offering you salvation. If you're at home, he's offering you salvation. Now you're gonna have an opportunity. Obviously, during our time of commitment, I, I hope and pray before God, I hope and pray that we'll become convicted people, that we will we will begin to pray broken-hearted prayers for lost people that we know. I'm praying that God turns our church upside down for the souls of people in Simpsonville, South Carolina, the upstate that surrounds us. God wants to use us, but look, we gotta care about hurting people. We've gotta care about people who are far from God. And so there shouldn't be a service, to be honest with you, that's that's absent from people who are praying for lost people. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you are the most important person in the room. And during this song, there'll be ministers down front. If you, if you move and you want to, to have a conversation right now, you could have that conversation about salvation. And just a minute, Ashley's gonna come back up and, and he'll even give you an opportunity where you can text in and have a communication, a conversation with someone about your salvation. Do not put it off. This is the most important decision in your life. The question is not, has he done enough? And the question is not, has he shown up? Look, he's here. The question is, what are you going to do in response? Lord, we love you, and God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how clear the gospel is. There's never any doubt in our minds where you stand. And God, I'm thankful that you stood for us, (laughs) That, that this story reminds us that this week that we're beginning, we call it Passion Week, this is Jesus Week. I mean, this is legitimately everything that you did for us. God, as you went into Jerusalem, we're reminded that That, God, you are the one who the Old Testament prophesied about it. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would just remind us of our dependency on you. That we would remember, it's not just about embracing you as Savior. But, God, that you're Lord of our lives. And you deserve our complete allegiance. Lord, I pray you'd speak to us that we would be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?